Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Ask Shane Anything. This is a show really where you and I get to connect on a personal level. We got a lot of feedback for a long time on our Patreon uh, that we weren't providing something like that. And so that's where Ask Shane Anything came from. Now, it's done really well for quite a while. You guys have been engaged, you've been asking great questions, but the questions are really slowing down. <laughs> I, I know I've said this the last couple weeks. Um, but I want to reiterate, a couple people jumped in at the last minute and added questions, just enough for us to do this week's episode, but overall questions are way down, um, and obviously we need those to do the show. I mean, I get it, there's a law of diminishing returns with a show like this, after a while you're like, we've asked him everything, <laughs> so if you like, it's like, Ash, ain't anything, you've asked everything, I totally get it, it gets harder to ask new questions as time goes on, so maybe something like this, it just, this is natural, this is how it happens, however... If we can't start getting more questions, I am going to start finding maybe some other show to sub in like every other Friday for you guys. Um, I don't know. You guys watch the show, but you guys don't seem to want to participate in it anymore. So I don't know. Anyway, the point I'm getting at is we need more questions. So go to sifted.net and in the header, there's a link there where you can ask me questions. This is going to be really important too when the Christmas holiday gets here. Because what I have to do is I have to bank a ton of episodes so that we can run them while I'm actually gone on the East Coast. And we'll need a big log of questions then. And I'll ask for those when the time comes, obviously. But anyway, just to let you know, you know, if a Friday comes and there's not an Ash Chain anything and there's something else there in its place, I just want you guys to know why. So if you can, go over and ask some questions. We still got great, great questions for this week. Let's get straight to them. First up this week is a question from Liberal Hack. What's your take on Zelda Tears of the Kingdom and Marvel Spider-Man 2 both reusing large sections of their maps from the previous game? At first, I did not like the idea, but I've come around. Open world games often feel empty. If given the choice between a new empty map or a more densely packed old map with lots of variety and tasks, I think I'd pick the latter. What innovations do you think could happen in creating meaningful open worlds? Well, I guess the first thing I would say is that just because a game or a franchise is starting a new open world, it doesn't mean it has to be empty. <laughs> I think maybe you're playing too much Zelda, bro. <laughs> like <laughs> Most open world games aren't like that, no matter how many entries there have been. I mean, most open world games are densely packed with stuff. Look at Hogwarts Legacy, first game in the series, densely packed with stuff. I I'm not sure where this question's coming from. I'll be honest with you. Um, and as far as your your specific examples here with Zelda and Marvel Spider-Man 2, um, I'll start with Marvel Spider-Man 2. It's set in New York City. So if you were to change stuff, you would then make it inauthentic? I mean, I don't... I don't understand the question, really. Um, are you asking them to make it not as realistic and take stuff out that's really in New York City so that it's for the sake of being different than the prior game? I have no idea where you're coming from on that one. Uh, now let's talk about Zelda. Zelda also, it's Hyrule. They established a new Hyrule with Breath of the Wild. And so it's Hyrule now. And so if the next game is set in Hyrule, well, yeah, they're going <laughs> to reuse parts of the map because it had they have to. I wish you would pick different examples for this because I feel like you, first of all, I know you're a smart guy um, and we've interacted a bunch of times. So I feel like there's something here that I'm not getting. And maybe your examples aren't leading me in that direction. I'm not sure. Um, but I think you chose two open world games that may be the worst examples to illustrate your point. I don't know, man. What else did you ask here? What can they do? What are they going to do in the future to, to make open worlds better? 
AI, I think. I think we're already hearing rumblings about that from Grand Theft Auto 6 and that there's like a patent that Take-Two filed that allows like the NPCs to be created with AI and blah. I think that's where you're probably going to see stuff. And we're already seeing it too with um, some of the stuff with Unreal Engine 5. Like the tools that are in Unreal Engine 5, you can create open world so much more quickly. Now, to be honest, it is literally copy and paste, but those tools also give the artist the ability to just kind of drag and drop and morph things. Um, the tools that are coming for game development are way better than they used to be. And so I think because so many games now are open world, and also if you remember, CD Projekt Red is working with Unreal Engine for the next Witcher game. And the tools that they're developing for the next Witcher game are then going to be given to everybody to use in open world games. So I think a lot of the stuff that comes out of the next Witcher game is going to help in open world environments. And again, I think AI and being able to populate worlds with interesting things without having to spend so much time doing it by hand and curating it. I think those are going to be the advancements in open world games going forward. Now, I hope... <laughs> Some of the advancements that AI have given us so far do not make an appearance, like um, using AI for voice acting. Like I've managed to pretty much figure that out every time I hear it. Um, and I think big budget people will not do that. They'll continue to pay real voice actors to voice characters. But I think for the cheaper open world games, you may see some of that stuff. Um, but I think in general, just the tools are improving specifically for open world games. And I think that's what's going to kind of usher in the next wave or the next innovations for open world games. Um, to answer your question more bluntly, I guess, um, if there were no reason for them to reuse areas of a game, but they did it anyway, then I would have a problem with it. Obviously, with Zelda and Spider-Man, they had a reason to reuse those areas. But let's say, let's say, for example, you have a franchise where you have one entry, and then the next entry in the franchise, let's say that that entry is set on Mars. And then the next entry of the franchise is set on Earth or Jupiter or whatever. Well, then if they reuse the same areas, then it would be egregious because that doesn't make sense. Why would you have an area that was previously on Mars now on Earth or on Jupiter? So then I guess I could understand what you're saying, but otherwise it's kind of just going woof. Next up, we have a question from our main man, Kevin. What went wrong with Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3? It's received horrible reviews. Yes, it has. It has received horrible reviews. It's also received horrible user reviews. Um, and I kind of, kind of talked a little bit about this on Game Face with Matt um, when we talked about the game this week when we talked about the multiplayer. So I'm going to try to come from a different angle here so that I'm not rehashing the stuff I talked about on Game Face. And that's very easy because what I'm seeing happening with Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3 is something that I call the poisoned well or the rotten apple. So... I guess the best way I can describe this is if just look at the difference between how Matt and I look at some games. So Matt is like the super fan. He does tons of research. He reads everything. He watches everything about every game that he's really into. He almost knows everything about the game before he ever plays it. And then he has expectations based upon what he's learned before he plays the game. Now, my mantra has always been, I evaluate what's on the disc. I don't take into account hardly anything outside of, well, there aren't discs anymore. Well, there, for some of us there are. But I don't take into account any of the other crap that comes around with the game, like any problems that they have with development or social issues. Again, like Matt really bent out of shape over Hogwarts Legacy. I just evaluate Hogwarts Legacy as a video game. I don't think about the other parts of it. And it's, they're just two different approaches. I'm more of a hardcore editorial approach. Matt is sort of the fan approach. And that's fine. I think that's why Game Face, I think that's why you guys like it. 
because between the two of us, we approach things from those two different angles. And ultimately, I think you can figure out which side you're on as far as what kind of player you are and who you resonate more with. It works for Game Face. Um, so I think it's poisoning the well. And you may ask, like, how, well, how was the well poisoned? Well, because everybody knew that there was not supposed to be a Call of Duty this year. Everybody knew that it was supposed to just, they were supposed to add some new maps and it was just supposed to be Modern Warfare 2 again. And as it turns out, they're like, oh, well, we have all this content. We actually have enough for a full game. And they ended up releasing a full game that wasn't just an expansion of Modern Warfare 2. But the well was already poisoned. You guys already knew that this wasn't supposed to be its own game. So what, and I'm not blaming you. Like, what logical conclusion does your brain go to then? Oh, they didn't spend that much time working on it, so it might be bad. So you've already kind of planted it in your mind that the game might be bad. So that's the poison well. It's the reason why when I ran editorial at Game Trailers and everywhere else I've ran editorial, if somebody on my staff previewed a game, they were not allowed to review the game. Now, why, you may ask. They know more about the game. Why wouldn't you put them on it? That's why I don't want to put them on it. Because they already know too much. And in fact, if they played preview code, chances are they probably came across bugs or other issues where the voice, and it poisons the well. It puts it in the back of their mind that like, oh, this game has problems. So when they go to play the review code, they have it in the back of their mind. Like, this game had some problems. Have they fixed them? Have they not? You're more likely then to pick up on the problems. Poison well. That is what's happening with Modern Warfare 3, mixed with some of the other stuff I talked about on Game Face, where you got the PlayStation fans who are all pissed off because Call of Duty is owned by Xbox now. I fully believe that tons of PlayStation fans have gone anywhere they can, to Metacritic, to Steam, to wherever they can, to carpet bomb the user review scores for Modern Warfare 3. I, there's nothing you can say to me that will convince me otherwise. So between the poison well with the critics, the critics are like, oh, well, this wasn't supposed to be a full game, and now it is, and the fact that a lot of people reviewing games now are really young and inexperienced, coupled with the whole fanboy crap with Activision, Blizzard, and Microsoft buying all these studios and all the PlayStation fans are angry, all that winds together to result in, honestly, an unfair result for Modern Warfare 3. Now, don't get me wrong. You've heard me talk about it on Game Face for both the campaign and the multiplayer. I don't think they're great. I don't think they're the best entries in pretty much anything other than maybe zombies. In Call of Duty history, most of the stuff in the game is mediocre or slightly disappointing. It's not a five. <laughs> It's just not. So um, I think that's what's happened with Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3. You guys can feel free to share your opinions. But let's be honest, like a lot of you guys don't play Call of Duty. You don't. Like, and but you're a, a lot of the people who don't play Call of Duty are the ones who like to jump in because they hate Call of Duty. I don't know why there's this weird stigma against people that play Call of Duty like me or people that like Call of Duty. It's like if you like Call of Duty, you turn in your hardcore gamer card or something. I don't know. I think it's insane. But a lot of the people who are slagging Call of Duty haven't even played the game. So I guess what I would say overall is don't believe the anger. It's not a great Call of Duty. It's definitely not an abysmal Call of Duty either. It's somewhere in between. And that's kind of how the truth always works. Next up, we have a question from Mr. 60. When you were skating, what were your favorite decks? Also, when you came to LA, what famous or hidden spots were you able to skate? Are any of them your favorite? Okay, I mean, yeah, it's fair to say at this point I'm no longer a skater. There was quite a while where I was still skating, I don't know, once every couple months just to go out and have fun and push around. I don't really do that anymore because I got hurt. Um, I, went, I took my skateboard to get groceries literally just across the street. And when I was coming back with two bags of groceries in my hands, my wheels hit a pebble and the weight of the groceries launched me off the skateboard and I fell really hard. And I mean, I've, I had skated for 20 some years. I know what a hard bail is. I fell hard. And I think I broke my arm. 
<laughs> the dumb thing is, is I didn't go get it looked at. It was so much pain that I had to sleep sitting up that night on the couch with my arm, like, in this very specific, like, way so it wouldn't kill. And then I woke up the next day and most of the pain was gone. And then I just let it heal. But now I'm starting to find out that it probably was broken and I should have went to the doctor because I'm starting to have, like, weird issues in my hand. I don't think it's carpal tunnel. I think it's because I have a broken wrist that I never got fixed. And so I haven't skated much since then. Um, but I guess maybe I still consider myself a skater. I don't know. But the point being, for a big chunk of time while I lived here, I still consider myself a skater. And I still keep my eyes open for stuff that happens around skating. And the first thing I would say is that, like, when I got to L.A., I didn't realize, like, a lot of the most popular L.A. spots, one, that were really close to me. But two, how nondescript they look when you just drive by. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Like, all these spots that I would see in Thrasher and Transworld Skateboarding Magazine in L.A. that I thought they were, like, these grandiose... They're not. They're just, like, these little areas, like, tucked away on the side of a building. Like, you almost need a guide to get you to them, honestly. So when you talk about favorite spots, obviously, the skate park at Venice Beach is awesome. It is a full-on park in the beach, Nobody graffitis it. It's all clean and pristine. Everybody respects it and takes care of it. That's a great place. But then I think what you realize too, like if you live here long enough, you will just see people filming skate videos all over the place. Like there's a church like a block away from me that has a handrail that they have put the spikes on to keep people from like grinding it and sliding it. And the thing is that skaters like to go there and still slide or grind it. And so it's like this legendary spot where people go to prove that, like, even if you try to spike a handrail, you can still skate it and do crazy tricks on it. That's a block away. Like, if, if you live in L.A., there are just amazing skate spots everywhere. There are three skate parks within three miles of me here. It's pretty crazy. Like, it really is like a skater's paradise. And it's unfortunate that I ended up moving here at such an old age that I didn't really get to enjoy it. Um, so those are some of my favorite spots. Like, I've gone to the Hollywood High School, that legendary stair set there. I didn't skate there, but I just went there and just watched people skate. Like, one Saturday afternoon for, like, three or four hours. It is burly. Like, that is a burly handrail. That is a burly set of stairs. So anytime you see someone doing something down the Hollywood High School steps or whatever, it takes some guts. I'll say that much. Now, favorite boards. Um, I skated long enough that I saw the evolution of the skateboard. So when I started, all skateboards were shaped like a bullet. The nose was really short, the tail was longer, but they were mostly flat. Like the nose, the tail was slightly kicked up, but the nose was flat. And then over time, the noses started getting a little bit bigger and they started kicking up a little bit just so it would catch your foot when you would ollie. Um, and then tails got really steep. So the board, the first board that I really remember that I latched onto other than like the really early skateboards, like um, like Schmidt sticks, like the, the board where the, the Joker is looking out through the bars, like... That was probably the first deck that really caught my eye. But then after I started skating, it was more about like how the board helped me skate or be a better skater. And there was this, fir this first company that really kind of broke the mold. It was called H Street. Um, their boards, while the noses were still sh short and weren't kicked up much, their tails were gigantically kicked up, like the craziest tails. And for at that point, when I got that board for the first time, that was the first time I was able to ollie over a trash can. It was the first time I was able to ollie over a bicycle rack. And I'm talking about on the flat ground, not without a ramp, just ollie over a bike rack, just ollie over a trash can. Um, those boards changed my ollie and changed everything for me. Um, and everybody I knew was riding H Street decks for like a really long time because of that, because the tails were kicked up and it could help you ollie higher. So those are some of the first boards that I remember. Another thing I would say too is like... um. 
I would find a board that I liked and I would stick with it. So with Alva, it was Chris Cook. That was the board that I stuck with. A lot of other people like their other models. They all had the same tails, but they would have different graphics on the bottom, shaped a little bit different. Um, but I always, I didn't care about Chris Cook. I would, didn't think he was a great skater. I didn't really know him that well. I just liked his board. And so I, I had like five or six Chris Cooks in a row. Um, there was lots of boards like that where I'd find it and I'd really like it. It felt good to ride. And I would just keep buying the same ones over and over again. Um, there's the, another one that, re- that I remember a lot is uh, there's a Santa Cruz skateboard that has like a skull with a hood on, like throwing a fireball. That board sticks out to me. Um, There was a board, I believe it was from Santa Monica Airlines, that has a tree with a KKK guy hanging from the tree. And I I bought the shirts I bought. (laughs) In fact, my bass guitar has a sticker of that on it. Um, I had the shirts. I had a sweatshirt. I bought the boards for forever. It was like the best board graphic ever. Um, and I had, I ran that for a long time. I, I could go on and on. If you skate for a long time, you know what I'm talking about. Like you find a board that you feel like you can skate well and you just keep buying it over and over until they stop making it. And then you have to find another one. So anyway, um, those are kind of the boards that stick out in my time through skating. There are just so many, like the art on skateboard decks. I just love it. I haven't turned into the weird, like old dude who collects like skateboard decks yet. <laughs> a lot of my friends are like that. Like you go to their houses and like, they're just a whole wall of skateboard decks. They admit, like, like they reissue a lot of these things. Um, so anyway, I don't have that kind of an affinity for it. I still have all my old decks, but they're all beat up. The noses are destroyed from learning wall rides, and the tails are chipped down to nothing. Uh, they're nothing pretty that you'd want to hang on the wall. So um, anyway, I guess those were my favorite decks, and those are some, um, some of my favorite skate spots in Los Angeles. Hi-ya! All right, our last question for this week's episode comes from Znark. How would you change up the Assassin's Creed formula? To me, it seems quite stagnant. When you answer, please disregard potential sales and just provide your personal preferences. Okay, thank you for clarifying that I shouldn't worry about whether they'll sell or not. Just something that I'm interested in. And I'm a little surprised to hear this coming now because they just kind of really drastically changed up Assassin's Creed. So I'm guessing that you did not like Assassin's Creed Mirage or you haven't given it a chance, something like that. But I do think Assassin's Creed Mirage take some steps in the right direction to being an Assassin's Creed that I want to play. Um, I think it's an Assassin's Creed. There should be assassinations. Like, they should be a big part of the game. Targets, researching the target, finding the perfect time to strike, all the stuff that was kind of in the first two games, and also, again, kind of in Mirage. Like, that needs to come back and be a focus of the game. The other thing that needs to change is they need to go back to the duality of the franchise. What made it so fascinating when it first launched was that you had, like, this real world, and then you had the Animus, which was this gateway into the past. I feel like it's lost that duality. It kind of lost, like, its spark. It made it unique. Now it's just kind of this game, this period piece game, where, oh, now we're the Vikings, and now we're in 13th century Italy. And, like, the whole modern-day Animus stuff has been completely excised. Now, I get it. That stuff kind of started to fly off the rails, and it was kind of hard to follow, um, but that's Ubisoft's fault. Like, it had, I thought at first, it was simple to understand and fun and unique. And then as they started getting into it, they made it too complicated and people lost interest. So I think they could have simplified that modern day quest line a little bit more um, and made it have more legs than it had because I do feel like people burned out on it. So I guess another thing I would say that might make Assassin's Creed interesting again is to go into the future. <laughs> They've yet to do it. It's always been like this history lesson in a video game thing, which is great, and I really enjoyed that part of it, but I do feel like they're kind of starting to run out of eras that are all that interesting. Go to the future. 
why haven't we played a futuristic Assassin's Creed yet? Like, that's un that's unplowed land right now. Like, so I can't understand why they haven't done that. I think that might invigorate people, get people excited about it again. I feel like we're getting most of the settings that people have requested at this point, like the next three or four games that we know about, like Hexy and Red and all those, like they all seem to be things that people have requested in the past. Like Hexy, I'm really excited for because it's set in this weird, like witchy occult like thing. Like that type of stuff to me is interesting and could reinvigorate the Assassin's Creed franchise. Going in different parts of society, like you don't have to be in mainstream society. Like every time they go back in time, and I understand why they do this, because they want to build historical significance within their games, but you're, like, rubbing elbows with, like, Aristotle and, like, all these significant, like, historical figures. They never, like, go back into, like, this weird, like, offshoot of society. And they could do that in future games. They could do it in present games or whatever. I think that's what they're doing a little bit with Hexy. So I think that's headed in the right direction. So I'm a little disappointed to hear that you didn't think that Mirage is a step in the right direction. Because if you did, I feel like you would have mentioned it at least. So... I do feel like you're one of those people, kind of like me, who really liked the first few Assassin's Creed and you feel like it's kind of gotten out of your grasp over the last, like, ten years or so. I'm right there with you, but it's not easy to figure out how to completely reinvent one of the industry's most popular franchises, sales or not. All right, that's it for this week's edition of Ask Shane Anything. I want to wish you guys a happy Thanksgiving because that's coming up here in the next week and we won't do another one of these until the day after Thanksgiving. And in fact, we may not have one of these next week at all. I think we may be taking Thursday and Friday off from the site because you know what? I need some time off too, just like everybody else. Uh, so it may be a couple weeks uh, before we get back to asking anything again. But however, that gives you plenty of time to go to the link in the header at sifted.net and ask some questions so I have a big backlog. And again, don't forget that Christmas is coming. And again, I need to bank a bunch of episodes of Ashing Anything to run while I'm gone so you guys have content running through the site and through our Patreon. So thanks, everybody. Again, hope you guys are planning for an awesome Thanksgiving. We'll see you on Game Face on Tuesday. Have yourself a great weekend.